This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. Hi, welcome to East of Eden. This is Nick Batzig. I'll be your host for our third episode. We're glad that you've joined us today. We're going to look at another one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons today, and this one is titled The Most High, A Prayer Hearing God. It's based on Psalm 65.2, and it is in uh, volume two of the works of Jonathan Edwards, the Hickman edition. You'll find that on pages 113 to 118, I believe. And we are joined this morning by our great panelists. We've got back with us again today, Dr. Craig Beal, who is the author of uh, The Infinite Merit of Christ, The Glory of Christ's Obedience and the Theology of Jonathan Edwards. Craig, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Nick. It's great to have you back on the show. And um, we are also sitting down with Reverend David Filson, who is a teaching pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Dave is a PhD student in historical and theological studies at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And he is also an adjunct professor at RTS Charlotte, where he teaches a course on Jonathan Edwards um, entitled The Theology of Jonathan Edwards. Dave, how are you doing? Doing well. Good to be here. It's great to have you back on. And as usual, we have one of our regular Reform Forum Crisis Center panelists, Jeffrey C. Waddington, who's a teacher of the congregation at Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. Jeff is a uh, also a PhD student uh, doing a doctoral dissertation on the apologetic method of Jonathan Edwards at Westminster Philly. And it's great to have you on the show this morning, Jeff. Oh, it's great to be here, although I must confess, I'm not sure how to take that one of our usual uh, hey, people. hey, you're a fixture, man. There's, yeah, there's it's a nothing. piece of furniture. I love it. <laughs> hey, fixture in the good, in the good term. The kind of fixture you don't want to get rid of. Oh, One of our okay. unusual panels. How's that? <laughs> yeah, that might be a little less felicitous. So. Yeah, I was going to say, all right. <laughs> well, as we said, we're, we are sitting down to consider um, another one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons. As our listeners will know, this is a show devoted to uh, consideration of the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. He was clearly one of the greatest theologians um, in the, the history of America and in the history of the Christian church in the New Covenant era, and we're thankful that God has left us so many rich sermons and discourses and uh, treaties to study by Jonathan Edwards. And this morning we're looking at um, the sermon that he wrote on Psalm 65.2, O Thou That Hearest Prayer is the verse that it's based off of, and the title again is The Most High, A Prayer Hearing God. Um, I wanted to pitch it over to Dave as we we enter in on this discussion, just to set us up with the historical background of this, this sermon. Uh, would you want to take it from here, Dave? Sure. I'll say a few things just about, you know, Edwards as a preacher, uh, sort of uh, from 30,000 feet, because, you know, Edwards, I think at the end of the day, he considered himself first and foremost uh, a preacher. And, and that's often the case with a lot of these uh, giants on whose shoulders we stand. You know, we... Um, we spend a lot of time with their treatises. We spend a lot of time with their theological tomes. And sometimes we can do that to the neglect of sermons. And we begin to forget that, uh, you know, in their hearts, they, they wanted to be Bible teachers. They wanted to be Bible preachers. You know, uh, Calvin, you think of Calvin, you think of, uh, of the Institutes or some of his treatises or his commentaries. And it's actually, as he's on his deathbed, he um, simply attests a to what he believes was his most important contribution, believe it or not, was his, his sermon corpus. And you see that in a lot of the lives of these great you know, theologians in the Reformed tradition. Edwards would be no exception uh, to that. We have over 1,200 sermons extant. Um, the sources for these extant sermons, most of them are at the Beinecke Library at Yale, about four-fifths of them. And uh, even between the Hickman edition, which a lot of folks have, either the Banner of Truth reprint, or I think Hendrickson has done it as well, between the two-volume Hickman edition or the Yale hard print, uh, hard copy edition, you know, only a relatively small portion of these extant sermons will be reprinted. Now, of course, with the Yale site, the works of Edwards, you know, obviously the sky's the limit in terms of what can be transcribed 
and printed. But but what we have uh, in hard copy is a relatively small uh, percentage of those extant sermons. There are three primary periods of of sermonizing or sermon writing for Edwards, and and in these periods, there, there's always uh, a mind and a heart with Edwards toward the apologetic task, uh, given the you know the encroachment of uh, of deism and Arminianism, etc. There's always a mind toward the apologetic polemical task. Sometimes that's more evident um, in certain sermons than others, obviously. But those three periods, generally speaking, again, this is kind of macro level, thirty thousand feet, would be seventeen twenty to uh, twenty seven, and then from seventeen twenty seven to forty two, and then from seventeen forty three to fifty eight. And in that first uh, season, in that first section, 1720 to 27, there are approximately 65 sermons. These are sermons that were preached uh, in and around New York, Bolton, uh, Northampton. And here, Edwards, you'll find he's concerned doctrinally. I mean, you know, we see that, for instance, God glorified in man's dependence, very doctrinal sermons. Uh, but he's concerned with the sermon also as a vehicle for religious expression and sort of personal spiritual formation in the Christian life, because in some ways that's what he was going through as well right. during this, this period. Then in the second uh, season of sermons, 27 uh, to, to 42, there's a lot you know changing here, right? He's taking on uh, the pastorate uh, at, at Northampton, and these, these sermons are Northampton sermons. Uh, the sermon is increasingly becoming an instrument of awakening and pastoral leadership. I think we'll even see that with our sermon today, uh, because what you have are sermons that are being preached to sort of light the fuse for the First Great Awakening, and then sermons that are preached in the throes of the Awakening. So the sermon is an instrument for awakening, reflection on revival, uh, as well as pastoral leadership. Uh, There are approximately 645 sermons uh, in this period from 27 to 42, and about 140 of them show uh, outlining. And so you have a, a mixture of manuscript and some that are less full and more outline-oriented. The categories that we see of his sermons range from uh, regular expositional sermons, ordination sermons, earthquake and drought sermons, war sermons, a sermon like ours today on the Most High Prayer Hearing God, uh, fast sermons, sermons that are preached on the occasion of the call of a fast, sermons, funeral, thanksgiving, sacramental, sermons to the Indians, children's sermons, sermons on polity, ecclesiastical sermons, sermons that have sort of a mystical element uh, to them, um, you know, sermons that, that that deal with religious experience. I mean, it really is the, the full gamut. One of the, the interesting things about his some corpus in Yale Volume 10 on page 90, there is this excellent diagram that shows how really all of Edwards' literary roads led to his sermon corpus. And what I mean by that is that obviously he had his collection of notebooks that we all know about. He had a larger collection of notebooks that were dedicated to collecting and developing ideas for future theological writings, treatises, that kind of thing. His miscellaneous notebooks, his blank Bible, um, you know, images, his, his typological notebooks, uh, notes on the apocalypse, notes on scripture. These are notebooks that were sort of repositories for his theological plans. And then he had a smaller group of notebooks that were more planning-oriented and personal, you know, uh, his resolutions, diaries, that kind of thing. But on this uh, diagram on Yale, volume 10, page 90, it shows how all of these notebooks were used. Uh, as Edwards would craft a sermon, he would pull from these various notebooks. And so his sermons or his notebooks on the mind or on the notes on Scripture or shadows and types, he would utilize these notebooks and pull from them uh, little jots and tittles of ideas and notes to himself that he had made and incorporate them into his sermons. And I, I think the point of all this is that for Edwards, the sermon was a crucial piece of literature. Uh, Wilson uh, Kimnock says that a sermon thus became an integral part of Edwards' working papers and an essential vehicle for the articulation of his thought. The extent to which a sermon was involved in the cycle of cross-references that united Edwards' notebook corpus varied. The sermon participates in two separate cycles of reference, one involving the interleaved Bible, which, as you know, was just published in the Yale series a few years ago, and the scripture notebooks and the other uh, miscellanies. And so all these notebooks became very uh, integral for his preparation uh, for the pulpit. And most of his sermons, as you know, are 
really just typical examples of uh, what was called the Puritan plain style uh, of preaching. You know, you see this in William uh, Perkins, who lived from 1558 to 1602, his uh, classic, you know, preaching manual, The Art of Prophesying, where you see the Puritan plain style, um, you know, one section, the first section dealing with the, the text and an exposition of the text, usually relatively brief. The second section dealing with doctrine, a little more lengthy. And then the third section would typically be called, called in Edwards' corpus, either application, use, or improvement. That's fairly standard among uh, Puritan preaching. But this Puritan plain style is indicative uh, often of, of a doctrinal allegiance because it became a vehicle that was both easy to understand and accessible, but it was free of the sort of the aesthetic pretense of some of the Arminianizing high church Anglican preaching of that day. Not that they were all Arminian, of course. It was a philosophical commitment to this style of preaching that was not as ornate or seemingly pretentious that allowed them to communicate doctrine in, in an accessible, accessible way. But in this style... Uh, the doctrine and application section uh, easily took up about half of of those of those uh, sermons in Edwards. Um, Charles Engel says this form, i.e., this plain style form used by Edwards throughout his life, has a tripartite structure comprising a text, a doctrine, and application. It must have those basic divisions in order to be a fully developed Edwardsian sermon, um, and that um, that's certainly true of the text that's before us here uh, with the Most High Prayer Hearing God. It's very, very clear Puritan plain style. Uh, and this, this particular sermon, as I said, was given on the occasion of a, of a fast that was called because of a sickness that had broken out in the eastern part of, uh, of Boston. The date was January 8, 1735. And so that gives you kind of an idea that it was um, during that, that season of sort of the embryonic season of the First Great Awakening. He had just preached his 1734 Justification series, which sort of you know, helped light the fuse for the First Great Awakening. And so this sermon um, you know, falls early in that, in that period of the First Great Awakening. That's great. Thanks, Dave, for all that. That's very helpful background for, <clears throat> for our listeners as we go on in these sermons. It's interesting to me that um, in the expositional section of the sermon, which is generally shorter in Edward's sermons on the whole because he's going to spend a long time on doctrine, which actually includes a lot of application and then specific uses or applications. But um, he, he makes mention that this is, you know, a prayer that David prays in the midst of a difficult time when he is um, he's calling on God, but he says in that expositional section that this is a prophecy of the glorious times of the gospel when all flesh shall come to the true God. And, um, you know, as is true with so many Psalms, I love that Edwards points out that this has, you know, a redemptive, historical, prophetical value to it, that David is, is, is praying in light of God's promise to hear the nations, to hear people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language, not just to hear those in Jerusalem at the temple. And so it's interesting how, how even in that brief exposition, um, uh, Edwards focuses in on the prophetical, uh, biblical, theological um, aspect of the text. Uh, Craig, we were talking earlier about some observations you had about this sermon as, as Edwards goes into the um, observations of it. And he speaks about the Most High God is a God that hears prayer. And when he talks what is meant by God hearing prayer and accepting prayer, and, and he talks about God's character to hear prayer and to answer prayer, um, Tell our listeners a little bit about your observations on this specific sermon. Well, it's number one. It's a tremendous sermon that um, you know. I I hope to read maybe one time a week until I go to glory. It's just incredible um, how it points us to God and points us to the excellence of God. I I think this sermon, following last week's sermon, God glorified. Uh, by man's dependence, could be renamed God glorified by man's prayers because so central to this sermon is our dependence, utter dependence upon God, and in that dependence, in crying to him in prayer, God is glorified. And, and we know that Edward's view of God's ultimate purpose of all things is to display and communicate 
his glory through the person and redeeming work of Christ and the saving of unworthy sinners. For Edwards, that is the central theme of Scripture. That is God's ultimate purpose in creating all things and sending Christ to redeem us is the display of his glory. And in this sermon, we see that our prayers participate in God's ultimate purpose. And and we participate in God's ultimate purpose in praying to God in many ways. Uh, For one, in displaying his mercy and grace and accepting our prayers and acting upon our prayers in his power and wisdom and how he answers our prayers and that God can answer our prayers and do anything we ask of him because he is all-powerful. That is that is an attribute of God, and God's glory for Edwards is the excellence or the beauty of God's attributes. So in our dependence upon God to do things, we're exalting God's glory by showing our dependence upon his power and his excellence and his willingness to answer our prayers. Um, also, in giving us free access to him through the perfect atoning work of Christ, in whom all of God's excellent perfections are displayed, everything that is God is displayed in Christ, the Son of God, and in his redeeming work we see God's glorious excellence on display. And it is that excellence on display in his redeeming unworthy sinners that gives us access to pray to God. It's the reason why the the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It's the reason why we can come boldly before God in prayer. Um, it points to the infinite excellence of God in redeeming us and giving us that access. And also in how liberally God answers our prayers. He doesn't just ask, answer what we ask for, but he gives us abundantly beyond what we ask for. It shows his grace, his mercy. And as Edward puts it, you know, we are just but worms coming before God. But because of what Christ has done, um, God sees Christ's merits in our prayers and accepts them and, and sees them as... Uh, as worthy and answers them. And, and again, in all of this, God's excellence, his, his marvelous glory, his perfections are on display. And, yep. as we, so, and as we pray and we're on our knees, we're acknowledging our unworthiness and dependence upon God for all his mercy, grace, love, power, knowledge, wisdom for all things. So it's, it's really a marvelous picture of the infinite excellence of God through us coming to God in prayer. It's just a marvelous sermon. Yeah, I was particularly struck by um, some of the things that you just pointed out and and how Edwards there, um, under the doctrinal section, under point two, he says to show that the Most High is eminently a God that hears prayer. And there, he's really going to develop the idea that God delights to hear and answer prayers. The God who is glorious in all his attributes is the God who wants his people to pray to him. And you know, I think for, for people that really know Edwards' writings and know how searching Edwards can be at times, um, I remember reading Hypocrites Deficient in the Duty of Prayer when I was a young Christian, and I mean, we're all deficient to some extent, and Edwards is, is going to make you know that point. But um, it's not a very comforting sermon. This, on the other hand, he has this, this whole section where he is basically saying, look, God gives us free access to him, and he loves when we pray. And he talks about Jacob wrestling with him and, and how God wants us to be a people that are, are violent for the kingdom of heaven in prayer, and that, you know, it... it that section, at least in my reading, made me want to pray. It, it encourages prayer that, you know, God is not trying to make it as hard as possible. He's trying, he's trying to say, come, t- turn to me. Um, and, and the way Edward strings together scripture, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.14. And um, he says, lest God indulges all kinds of persons and all nations. And he cites 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, unto all in every place they call in the name of our Lord Jesus. And then he quotes Proverbs 15.8, the prayer of the upright is his delight. And, and Song of Songs 2.14, uh, where Christ says to his bride, oh, my dove, let me hear your voice, for sweet is your voice. Even there you see the the beauty beauty of the gospel and the the gospel motivation 
Christ saying to his bride, let me hear your voice, sweet is your voice. And um, quoting Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silent, give him no rest. And then he says, thus Christ encourages us in the parable of the importunate widow and the unjust judge of Luke 18. So in the parable of the man who went to his friend at, at mid midnight. And I find that personally on a pastoral level, um, not only that God hears, but God delights in the prayers of his people. That is a powerful, powerful motivation. Absolutely. I, w- I was thinking that perhaps maybe uh, some folk think that God is like the unjust judge or, or like the, the neighbor who really is irritated that his, uh, his neighbor has woken him up. But God is not like that, right? Uh, God, when Jesus tells those parables, he's saying, okay, if it's true that you can, through uh, sticking to your guns, even convince an unjust judge to render justice, how much more the loving God who delights to hear our prayers, right? That's uh, right, that's right. And I, and I think that's, that's part of uh, Edwards' uh, point, is that is that God delights to hear our prayers. I think if we really allowed that truth, to find its uh, its dwelling place in our hearts and minds, prayer would no would 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 cease to be uh, primarily a duty, although it is a duty, obviously, but that it would become a joy, or that it would become a, a, a dare I say second nature for the saint to have recourse to uh, to prayer. Yeah, and then, you know, as he goes through this doctrinal section, he really sets out 15, um, he has 15 points or 15 um, somewhat short paragraphs um, in which he is just going through these different aspects. In the third section of the doctrinal um, area, he says that God delights to hear and to answer prayer, and he says the Most High is eminently one that hears prayer, um, appearing that he gives liberally in answer to prayer. And there, again, another powerful motivation. Not only does he delight to hear our prayers, but he is a God who gives liberally, and, and Edwards quotes James 1 there, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and does not withhold. And, um, and it's, you know, it's interesting because in, in one sense, we're talking about the, the hermeneutical elements of Edward's sermons. This is really systematic theology at its finest because he is going through the doctrine of prayer and he is going, running the gambit of the scriptures and tying together all these different facets. Um, in the section, in the fourth, in the fourth subpoint, he'll say, God is eminently of this character. It appears by the greatness of the things which he has often done in prayer. And he'll run through um, the situation of Jacob and Esau and Moses in Egypt and Samson. And, you know, he'll go through all these biblical historical um, examples of how God did mighty things liberally and how he, he, he condescended to answer powerfully the prayers of, prayers of his people. In the fifth section, he'll say, God is, as it were, overcome by prayer. When God is displeased by sin, he manifests his displeasure, comes out against us in his providence, and seems to oppose and resist us. In such cases, God is speaking after the manner of men, overcome by humble and fervent prayer. And there he wants to show that, you know, while God doesn't need the creature, and he'll develop this in the sermon, um, while God gains nothing from the, the creature, nevertheless, the way God has so ordered things, um, God is seemingly overcome by the prayers of the humble and the fervent and the righteous man or woman. Right. You know, Nick, that, that the way he says, right after that quotation there, this is perhaps my favorite, one of my favorite quotations in, in the whole sermon. And this sermon actually uh, is... It it may be my favorite. That's hard to say. You know, Edwards Edwards sermon. It's certainly in the top five. But that section you just quoted. And this has to do so much with that motivation uh, that you're talking about. My motivation to prayer. He says it prayer has a great power in it. Now this is going to tie into something he's going to say in just a little bit later. But he says it has great power in it. Such a prayer hearing God is the Most High that he graciously manifests himself as conquered by it. Mm. And I love that imagery of, of God. I mean, let me be careful how I say this. God <laughs> setting himself before us saying, come and conquer me. I mm. so delight in you. Mm. 
I so love you. I so want to hear your heart. Not that you're informing me of your desires, but I so love you and I so want to hear you. I'm going to set myself before you as conquerable mm. by your by your prayers. And the, you know, and then this analogy is going to break down, obviously. But I I hear that, and the only thing I can think of by way of analogy is when my little girl comes to me and she wants something, and I love her so much, and she knows how to charm me, right? <laughs> and I become putty in her hands, and and I am. You know, my wife will tell me that Lydia, you know, she knows how to work me, right? <laughs> well, obviously, <laughs> we're, we're, we're not working God. But, but there's an analogy there. I am, I am so conquerable mm. by my daughter because I love her mm, right. or by my son. You know, when my, when my children come to me, I'm so conquerable. And to, to know that God presents himself as conquerable, mm. uh, it, I, I love it. And, then, uh, and as you said, Nick, this really is a wonderful example of systematic uh, theology because this whole motivation to prayer is grounded uh, Christologically and soteriologically because right before the application section, Edwards uh, says we have a glorious mediator, and because of that, God's hearing of our prayers is consistent with the honor uh, of his justice and his, and his majesty. And because of the atonement that Jesus made, uh, sin is no longer a veil that keeps us from God. He's purchased the hearing of our prayers. He's merited that hearing. He enforces uh, the the hearing of our of our prayers, and, and he says that our prayers uh, go to the Father through His hands, if I may say so. He says Christ has merited the hearing of our prayers, and that's just mm. great motivation. That's why God is conquerable. That's awesome. awesome. Right. Yeah, that's marvelous. And I, I wanted to add, and Edwards is so theologically careful that. In God's personal relations with his people, he is, you know, he's infinitely personal with us. And yet at the same time, he qualifies it under his inquiry, Roman numeral one. He says, yet it is not to be thought that God is properly moved or made willing by our prayers. For it is no more possible that there should be any new inclination or will in God than new knowledge. Mm. The mercy of God is not moved or drawn by anything in the creature, but the spring of God's beneficence is within himself only. He is self-moved, and whatsoever mercy he bestows, the reason and ground of it is not to be sought for in the creature, but in God's own good pleasure. So, so Edwards is very, very careful in maintaining that sort of tension between God as a personal God, and yet God as an unchanging, infinite God, right. impassable God. Um, right. It, it's just marvelous. He doesn't, he doesn't let that get by in the sermon that anybody could accuse him of... Uh, you know, believing that God somehow was less than perfect in his relationship to his people. Well, right, it, right. You, you can think of two examples from the Old Testament where both sides are, are in view. Uh, one would be uh, uh, God's conversation with Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, right, where, where mm. Abraham starts saying, well, if you find 50 righteous men, and it whittles it down to uh, 10 or 1, uh, but God ultimately has his way, uh, and he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm. Uh, then in Exodus 32, uh, when the children of Israel, while Moses is up on the mount receiving the Ten Commandments, they uh, revel in idolatry and create the golden calf. Uh, and uh, Moses goes to bat as a mediator, as an intercessor. And yet, and God you know, says, leave me alone in my anger. Again, there's this, uh, both uh, God in his absolute holiness and uh, aseity, but also his personal uh, nature and in, in interacting with Moses. But uh, you'll, So you see that interaction in the biblical narrative. It's not something created by systematic theology. It's there in the text, and, and Edwards picks that up. Uh, somewhat related to this whole issue is... Uh, You'll see points uh, seven uh, and eight of the uh, doctrinal observations. One that God's ultimate desire is that the prayer, not the prayer, but the prayer, should submit His will and trust Him for mercy. Uh, I had a conversation at the end of uh, a service just a week a week ago, uh, and the and the person asked me, you know, uh, do we get whatever we ask for? And I said, well. Uh, the truth of the matter is it's what we ask for does need, as First uh, John tells us, to be according to God's will. And so there is, a, there is that molding of the prayer 
that goes on in prayer. Now, I don't think uh, Edwards is encouraged is is saying to us, "Don't pray until you get your motivation right." We should be communing with God, and in the process of that communion, that prayer, we will be molded and conformed to God's will. Uh, and then he goes on and he says, "The prayer may not receive what he wants, but the goal is that he would desire what God wants for him." And that mm-hmm. kind that that molding process, I think, happens in prayer. Mm-hmm. And of course, in in the study, the prayerful study of God's word, uh, we will be molded. Uh, the Holy Spirit working through the word in the experience of prayer. Uh, the prayer, the person praying, will be molded uh, and be conformed to the, the image of the Son of God, as as Paul will say elsewhere in the New Testament. And the the submission to God's will will occur. So there is an interaction. Prayer, prayer is not a one-way street, is it? No, and, and Jeff, if I could just add to that, um, in Religious Affections, Edwards mentions that God has given certain things for us to do, certain means of grace in order to uh, stir the affections. Mm. And one of those is prayer, in that it stirs in us a greater love and appreciation of God, both through the direct work of God, as he did in this, in this sermon, as God moved in the heart of Hannah as she prayed, and gave her, so to speak, her answer even as she prayed through the comforting of her heart. Um, but also God molds our affections to, as we, as we speak of our, more, our great unworthiness before God and his great infinite excellence and how he is the one upon whom we depend for all things, our heart is moved to a greater love of his excellence, of his attributes, of, of his holiness. And so he does indeed, as you said, mold us to a greater affection towards God, even in the midst of our prayers. Right. You know, you almost see in this sermon that um, prayer is more a benefit to us while it brings God glory, as you've mentioned, Craig, and as is very clear that he gets glory through our dependence on him. There's also, after um, Edward skips down, over the little subsection where he talks about how the true God is distinguished from false gods. And one of the big things is that he's a God who hears, God who hears his people and who answers prayers. He then, he asks the question, and this is some of my favorite, this is why I love Jonathan Edwards, is for his rational theology, you know, this this would be a great sermon to give to any new Christian um, as reading any of Edwards really is because he wrestles with the deep questions. Okay, if God doesn't change... And if God doesn't benefit, he doesn't get anything from the creature. We don't add anything to God. He is full and satisfied and complete in himself. He's omniscient. He's sovereign. Why then do we pray? And I love how Edwards asked and answered this, that question. Why does God require prayer in order to the bestowment of mercies? And, and he says it's not in order that God may be informed of our wants or desires. And they're, you know, the same same way he would answer the biblical doctrine of election um, and foreknowledge. It's not that God learns something. It's that God knows everything. And he says he's omniscient with respect to his knowledge unchangeable. God never gains any knowledge by information. He knows what we want a thousand times more perfectly than we do ourselves before we ask him. For though speaking after the manner of men, God is sometimes represented as if he were, n- he were moved and persuaded by the prayers of his people. Yet it is not to be thought that God is properly moved or made willing by our prayers, for it is no more possible that there should be any new inclination or will in God or new knowledge. The mercy of God is not moved or drawn by anything in the creature, but the spring of God's beneficence is within himself only. He is self-moved. Whatever mercy he bestows, the reason and ground of it is not to be sought for in the creature, but in God's own good pleasure. And there, you know, Edwards is clearly answering all the theological errors of open theism, Arminianism, every, everything, everything that makes God more like the creature. Um, and yet when he comes to answer these things, as you guys have already noted, he sort of highlights, he says, first, there's two reasons why God requires prayer. First, there's respect to God that, that prayer is but an acknowledgement and dependence on him and his glory, as we've already talked about. But then he says, with respect to ourselves, God requires prayer of us in order to the bestowment of mercy because it tends to prepare us for its reception. Fervent prayer may many ways tend to prepare the heart. Hereby is excited a sense of our need and the value of the mercy we seek and at the same time earnest desires for it. And so... He'll go on and talk about really we benefit from prayer, which is something 
maybe we we forget often that God is not the one benefiting from prayer, even though he is glorified by the prayers of his people, but we are the ones that are really the recipients of benefit. Um, in that sense, you could even say, you know, uh, God delights in prayer because he wants to mature us and he wants to sanctify us and he wants to cause us to grow in grace. And that, and that itself is not, is not a distinction between God's glorifying us and displaying his glory because God's display of his glory is also the communication of his glory in and through us so that our joy is God's glory. That's right. And so even in making us happy and making us contented and and in all the benefits that accrue to us in prayer is that which also in and through us displays God's glory. That's right. uh, David, you've you've addressed the issue of fitness in the theology of Edwards, and here we've t- touched upon how prayer is a fit condition for the bestowal of mercy. Can you give us a brief uh, outline, if you will, of of what fitness is and how it fits into yeah. Edwards' theology? <laughs> yes, I'll I'll see if I can do a, a suitable job of that. Which uh, is another word he uses. He Edwards uses the language of fitness. Or meetness, M-E-E-T, like meet relations, M-E-E-T, or suitableness or suitable relations. And, and this idea of fitness for Edwards is a soteriological concept. It's an aesthetic uh, concept. If you've, if you've done much work in the, the ethics and the aesthetics of Edwards, fitness and beauty and primary beauty, secondary beauty, very, very paradigmatic and programmatic for Edwards. It's also a homiletic concept uh, for Edwards. And so... Fitness is one of those uh, programmatic sort of trajectory setting concepts in Edwards, and it's interesting that here in a very, a very pastoral, practical sermon, fitness uh, makes makes an appearance. He says, you know, before the uh, the application section, this is um, under the inquiry uh, one point two. He says, with respect to ourselves, God requires prayer of us in order to the bestowment of mercy because it tends to prepare us for its reception. And Nick was talking about that a second ago. Well, that's the idea of fitness. Um, He says that we place ourselves in the immediate presence of God, and that makes us sensible of his majesty and, in a sense, fit to receive mercy of him. And so there's a fit relationship that prayer provides. When we enter into prayer, a fit relationship emerges between our sense of dependence upon the majesty of God and his bestowing of mercy. He says, our prayer to God may excite in us a suitable sense. That's just another way of saying a a fitness. Uh, Our prayer to God may excite in us a suitable sense and consideration of our dependence on God for the mercy we ask and a suitable exercise of faith in God's sufficiency so that we may be prepared to glorify his name when the mercy is received. So, in prayer... There is a fit relationship that exists between God's majesty and our sense of dependence upon that majestic God, and then a fit relationship between that majestic God and his bestowal of mercy upon us, and then a fit relationship between our faith in that majestic and sufficient God. And then he says, he carries this idea of fitness over into the application section and uh, this is under a list of objections that he's setting up and answering. And this is at the top of uh, 117 in the Hickman edition. He says, The business of prayer is not to direct God, who is infinitely wise and needs not any of our directions, who knows what is best for us 10,000 times better than we, and knows what time and what way are best. It is fit that he should answer prayer and, as an infinitely wise God, in the exercise of his own wisdom and not ours. And so, there is a fitness that exists between the answer we get and the wisdom of the giver of that answer. Mm, mm. And so th- this idea of fitness is it's just all over the place. Again, it's a homiletic concept right. because uh, Edward sees that there's a fit relationship, for instance, between the word preached and the spirit working. That That's a right. fit or suitable situation where the spirit can work. Well, he applies it to prayer here very consistently and He's just such an integrated theologian. Now, David, some have read Edwards' discussion of fitness, say in justification, but also probably here, and they read into fitness a merit. Can you respond to that before we move on? 
Yeah, I would say that uh, for you know, and as it relates to justification uh, and and fitness, uh, Edwards is not seeing a fit relationship between our merit, say with regard, and if this is where you're going with the justification and what he calls evangelical obedience, Edwards uses the language of necessary but non-causal conditionality. So, for instance, there is a fit relationship or a, a conditional existence between, say, justification and good works or evangelical obedience, uh, a necessary condition, a, a sine qua non, but it is a non-causal meekness or a non-causal fitness. So while evangelical obedience is a condition of justification, it's a non-causal uh, fitness or a non-causal relationship. And uh, it would be, I guess a way of saying it would be to say our good works do not do not merit our justification, but they manifest that we have been saved. Our good right. works do not earn our justification, but our good works evidence that we have been justified. So he's very Calvinian in the sense of you know union with Christ having having that priority, but um, he, he insists on non-causal conditionality. Right. Yeah. And the necessary would... the necessary evidence is how right. the language that we're, we're going to read in our own day, is, rather than. The language of conditions um, right. that you would read in, in you know, more of Edwards' writing and uh, post-Reformation scholastics in our day, I think we would just boil it down to say our sanctified good works are the necessary evidence. So we're right. going to say the or same thing right? or consequence. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. in, in tying it to this sermon, so prayer is not the meritorious basis for the bestowal of mercy. It is the fit condition. Mm-hmm. So it's not the causal basis, but it is the, could you say the context? The divinely ordained, suitable context in which God gives mercy. Yes, I think, I think that's good. And I think the, the, the way merit figures into this idea of prayer, he's clearly laid it out. Merit's involved in, in prayer, but it's the merit of Christ that's right. Right, exactly. that has you know, earned our hearing and enforces the prayers of our people. But that's well said, yeah. And I was yeah, just it, about to point that out, um, Dave, that under the section right before the application, as he closes the doctrinal section, um, so fitting that he closes it with these three meditations about, um, you know, God hears us because we have a glorious mediator who, number one, has by his blood made atonement for sin so that our guilt does not stand in the way and the wall of separation between God and us is taken down and that our sins um, are not a cloud through which our prayers cannot pass. Number two, that Christ, by his obedience, as you just mentioned, has purchased, and there again, that language of purchase, this privilege. Last last week, we, we talked about Christ purchasing the Holy Spirit for his people. Now, Edwards is going to say, by the, the merit of Christ, he purchased the privilege of prayer that the prayers of those who believe in him should be heard, and he'll actually use the word merit, that Christ has merited a hearing. And then third, he says that Christ enforces the prayers of his people by his intercession at the right hand of God in heaven, and so that it's not just in the finished work of Jesus at Calvary, which obviously is the the foundation, but it's in his his continual intercession, Hebrews, that we have a great high priest in heaven and he ever lives to make intercession, that he is praying with us. And, you know, think about Romans saying that the Spirit intercedes and that Christ intercedes, that we have two of the three members of the Godhead interceding for us, making our, our prayers acceptable. Yeah, and mm. if I could just uh, interject briefly, just with respect to cause and effect, he also... In addition to that, and that's that's marvelously put, uh, Nick. By the way, um, he does state that God has constituted prayer as a and as, as an antecedent to the bestowment of mercy. So he does say, when people are stirred up to prayer, it's the effect. You know, you were earlier speaking of cause and effect. It's the effect of his intention to show mercy. Right. So right. there's. So therefore, he pours out the spirit of grace and supplication. Right, right. Now, we're almost out of time, so I just wanted us to briefly, I'm going to clean this little segment up, but just to transition us, because I know you guys probably have to go too. Um, 
Edwards ends this sermon with the applicatory section by really dealing with objections. That's a very Puritan maneuver, as it were, to to raise and then to answer objections. Um, I know we don't have a great deal of time to look at each of these, but it's interesting that he does raise the objection that, um, you know, someone may say, well, if God's a hearing God, why didn't he answer my prayer? Why did he take my child? Why did he let this happen? Why did he let this bad thing happen? Why didn't he rescue me out of this? And Edwards is going to go through a number of very refined, you know, uh, we'll say about the Puritans that they were spiritual apothecaries. They were spiritual doctors of the soul. And you really see there, you see Edwards maneuvering as a very refined doctor, as it were, here when he um, he goes through. And, and in that first section, he says, well, one reason that God doesn't hear is because people ask to spend it on their own lust. You know, oh, Lord, won't you give me a Mercedes Benz? He quotes James 4, 3, you ask, you receive not because you ask amiss to consume it on your lust. Um, and then he'll say, Edwards will say, if you request of God to give you something of which you will make an idol and set up in your own opposition to him, or will use it as weapons of warfare against him or as instruments to serve his enemies, no wonder God doesn't hear you. Um, I find found this to be an exceedingly helpful section where he, he raises and answers objections. Definitely. And, and actually, you know, that's motivating to me. Because um, to know that God knows better than me and that um, he's not going to be duped by me in my prayers, and nor is he going to give me something that I am asking for amiss, that, yeah, is, is going to be just an idol I set up in my own image. You know, it's that pastorally, that, that's comforting to me, actually. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it actually encourages... Um, a proper motive. We talked a little bit about motive early on, but it makes me want to pray according to God's will and to wait on God and to continue calling on God and to make sure that I'm not asking for something. And then even realizing, too, that, you know, I've heard Sinclair Ferguson say this, as we mature in the Christian life, we begin to thank God that he didn't even give us some of the things that we asked for because he knew that those things wouldn't be good for us and Mm -hmm. that the sovereign God who hears and answers prayers is the God who's guiding and directing and upholding all things and working things all together for the good of his people, his sincere and believing people. You remember, Nick, that reminds me of the the great theologian Garth Brooks uh, (laughs) (laughs) recorded a song some years ago called Some of God's Greatest Blessings Are Unanswered Prayers, although I'm not sure we might want to perfect that way of putting it, that uh, what appear to be unanswered prayers may be some of God's greatest blessings. But it's not as though the prayers are unanswered, it's that the prayers are answered according to God's wisdom and not our own. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, I just want to close with this last little thought about this sermon. Um, It's interesting the way that he ends this. I I was somewhat taken off guard by the way that um, Edwards ends this, because he says in that, that last full paragraph, he says, God is pleased sometimes to answer the prayers of unbelievers. Now, that should strike us as strange, because in Proverbs it says, you know, Um, even the prayer of the wicked is an abomination to God. But then he goes on to kind of, um, he goes on to, um, to break that down. He says, indeed, he hears not their prayers for their goodness or acceptableness or because of any true respect to him manifested in them, for there is none, nor has he obliged himself to answer such prayers. Yet he is pleased sometimes of his sovereign mercy to pity wicked men and hear their cries. Mm -hmm. Thus he heard the cries of the Ninevites, Jonah 3, the prayer of Ahab, Though there be no regard to God in their prayers, yet he and his infinite grace is pleased to have respect to their desires of their own happiness and to grant their respect. Thoughts on that? Because I was majorly taken back by that. Well, I mean, think about it. Uh, if if, if uh, the uh, proposition that God does not hear the prayer of a sinner uh, is absolutely true, then no sinner could come to faith in Christ. Would that not be true? Would yeah. that not follow? Say that one more so, time, Jeff. If God absolutely, without exception, never hears the prayer of an unbeliever, then who could come to faith in Christ? Well, but then, you know, you know, a strongly Calvinistic answer to that could be, well, God 
gives the sinner a new heart and enables them to call on him. Well, true. That that's that's true. And you uh, get in the sticky issue of Cornelius, and you know, I was doing a sermon on um, Cornelius um, was you know one who feared God and prayed, and um, you'll find several commentators, even in the reform world, who will almost talk about it as almost like a prevenient grace. Right. That's um, a, that is a. Although you could you could argue that Cornelius is in the process of. Uh, conversion, if you will, but he needs to hear the gospel, right? Right. And and I I guess uh, okay. So that's not really what Edwards is getting after, though, is it? Edwards is saying that sometimes in God's providence, He answers the prayer of unbelievers, uh, and that prayer may be part of the process to bring them to faith in Christ. The yeah, answer, that per- prayer. perhaps. I mean, in the case of the the proof text of the Ninevites that he mentioned, um, certainly that seems like that could be. But then I'm of the opinion that God actually saved a good number of people in Nineveh, and not everybody agreed with that either. So, right. Well, well, how about this? I mean, if we think back about God's dealing with uh, unbelievers in the Old Testament, uh, rulers of Babylon, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, and Balaam. Right. So, and it's it almost. It's the same question almost as the question of common grace. Right, right. Uh, some people denying that. So he's, he's, he, he can deal – Edwards clearly states that God deals with no one apart from a mediator, but much of his dealing with people through the mediation of Christ is, is by virtue of what Christ has done even though it hasn't been applied Right to everybody, and so, and Psalm one hundred seven says that God gave Israel the, their desires, and you know gave them meat in abundance till it came out of their nostrils. So I mean, <laughs> the Bible does also say, you know, that since God knows all things, since He is sovereign over all, that um, you know, even as a judgment to the wicked, He gives them the desire of their hearts and may answer their prayers in that sense. But clearly, distinguishing between God delighting in the prayers of His people because they are the prayers that are done out of sincerity, out of faith, out of a desire for God's glory, and even how perhaps He, um, it could be said that He is sometimes pleased to answer the prayers of unbelievers. Um, we are out of time, so I just want to encourage our listeners to read the sermon if you've never read it. This was the first time for me to read it, and I was greatly um, enriched in doing so. We're so thankful to have our panelists with us. Um, Craig, thank you for being on the show again, and I want to encourage our listeners to get a copy. If you can get a, a hold of Craig's uh, dissertation that was published by Reformed Academic Press, entitled The Infinite Merit of Christ. Um, I want to encourage you to get a hold of that and read that. Also be on the lookout for Craig's forthcoming volume. I think it will be out this August. It's expected to be out. Um, Solid Ground is publishing it, um, a study guide um, to the religious affections. Is that correct, Craig? It should be out uh, by the end of this month. Oh, okay. Okay. So the end of this month, look for Craig's study guide to uh, religious affections. I want to encourage you to um, visit Dave Filson on the web. Dave's got a blog. What is that called, Dave? And what's the, what is the it's, URL for that? It's uh, teachinglikerain.wordpress.com. All right, Teaching Like Rain is Dave Filson's mm-hmm. blog, teachinglikerain.wordpress.com. You'll find some great pastoral and theological thoughts over there. And if you're in the Charlotte area, be on the lookout, 2013. Dave's going to be teaching a course at the beginning of 2013 on the theology of Jonathan Edwards at RTS Charlotte. I want to encourage you to go to that if you can. I'm sure it'll be one of those very beneficial courses that you could take. And as usual, you'll find Jeff all over the web. You'll find him on feedingonchrist.com. You'll find him on Christ the Center, other reformedforum.org uh, sites and podcasts. And um, Jeff, we're, we're excited that you're getting your dissertation done and looking yeah. forward to the day that that may be available to, um, to people who would want to learn more about Jonathan Edwards' apologetics. We want to thank all our listeners for tuning in to this episode of East of Eden, and we hope that you'll tune in again as we consider more of the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. 